Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Epiphany's podcast, a ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. For more information about our church, you can visit epiphanyligonier.org. Okay, so we know that all sin is bad, right? We're down with that much at least. But that hasn't stopped Christians throughout the centuries um, from comparing notes about which ones are worse than the others. Which is the worst sin? Is there at least maybe one sin that's at the root of the others that if we can kind of nip that sin in the bud, all the rest will kind of clear itself up? So if you had to pick one of the worst, kind of the root cause of, of sins, the worst among them, what would they be? What would you pick as the worst sin of all time? And in our time, someone might say that um, the, the Ten Commandments, right, thou shalt not bear false witness, that that, that might be the worst sin of our time. Um, because we're very concerned right now about what? Fake news, right? Bearing false witness, telling people that which is not true. Um, maybe uh, spreading f- uh, fake news is a, is a chief sin, a number one sin in our time. And racism is another contender, right? That's another uh, contender for the worst sin ever, being absolutely convinced that um, skin color of some sorts is linked with superiority. Um, wrath is another one, right? Uh, a love of violence and power. And that's why we have a lot of these protests happening in large metropolitan areas against uh, what they perceive to be very wrathful police forces. Um, for some of you guys, requiring masks is the worst sin of all time. And, and, and for some of you guys, not requiring masks is the worst sin of all time. So in our own time, we have quite the list of which sin is the worst sin, which sin is the worst. And if you go back in church history, you know, outside of our own little time constraint here, if you were to ask uh, some smarty pants theologians what the greatest sin was, one of the front runners would be pride. They would say pride. Not like pride and like I made this thing and I'm really excited and look, I'm, I'm just sort of excited at how great this thing I made is right now. I'm working on like a dresser restoration in my spare time, which I have none of, but I'm really excited. I'm kind of proud of how it's turning out, right? We're not talking about that. We're talking about pride like hubris, like I'm the best, you know, like that kind of pride. Like I am the chief. I am in charge. And if you go through church history, you're going to have a lot of heavy hitters on your side, like people like Augustine of Hippo, St. Augustine, uh, the, the, the guy who wrote Confessions, perhaps the smartest guy in the entire old uh, ancient church. You get Thomas Aquinas, the chief medieval theologian. He would agree with you too. So would some of the great writers of English Christianity like John Milton in Paradise Lost. He crafts the character Satan in that novel around someone who's very proud. Um, Or you could even talk to uh, G.K. Chesterton, the the great Catholic writer who said, you know, if he had one sermon, G.K. Chesterton said if there was one sermon that he could preach, he could only preach one sermon in his entire life, He would get up in the pulpit and tell people about the dangers of pride. Um, And and, and today I'm actually going to disagree with them. How's that for something? So, you know, wish me luck, right? Um, But today I want to have a conversation with you all about the root of all sin. And I hope it's going to be a helpful insight for you in your own uh, earthly pilgrimage, your own walk with God. 
I'm going to do so through the context of our reading from Genesis chapter 12. I want to talk about promises. I want to talk about um, Genesis chapter 12. And then I want to talk with you about the worst sin in the world, or at least the deadliest sin in the world. So that's what we're going to do today. And, uh, you know, we're in a wild and crazy part of our series, The Gospel According to Genesis. I was reminded recently that it is not a gospel, it is a history book, and I'm like, yes it is, but just work with me on my clever um, uh, sermon uh, series titles. And last week we discussed how God has moved from being on defense, right, uh, that God is, is, seems like he's sort of playing catch-up and damage control with the world, um, that he's moved from playing sort of sin whack-a-mole, trying to take things as they go, to, to starting the plan to fix it all. And he did so by calling this one guy, Abram, to go on a special mission. And when he called Abram, he said, look, I want you to go and sort of uproot your life um, where you're living in Turkey right now. And I want you to take uh, a trip and go where I call you. And, and what we know is that from the world as it is in this time filled with shame and murder and violence and greed and jealousy and, you know, pride also and and, and all of these great things, and then everyone's starting to work together and build these systemically bad things for the world, we see that God's going to start using this guy, Abram, to fix it. And uh, he makes Abram a deal. He says, look, um, if you go to the land that I'm calling you, here is what you will get. I'm going to make a nation out of you. Your family is going to be so big that, that we're going to have to have a form of government over your family because it's going to be a nation. Um, and God says, so you're, I'm going to make a nation out of you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great so that you'll be a blessing to others. I'm going to bless your friends. I'm going to curse your enemies. And I'll bless every nation of the earth through you. Six promises. We talked about that last week. Big deal. And despite being old and despite being very safe in the context of his greater family, despite not having a child, which is the ancient Near East way of having a retirement system that your family takes care of you when you get older, um, he takes God up on the deal. He leaves uh, Haran, which is a city that we now um, say is in modern-day Turkey, and he travels south uh, to the region called Canaan. Um, now that's where we would call you know, like Israel, Palestine, that region. And um, he spends some time there. He travels around. He gets to see the sites. He goes to the, 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 the east and the west and the south of this region called Canaan. And God says, this is the land, this is where I'm going to do your promise, and I'm going to fulfill everything. And Abram's like, oh, okay, cool. But then, as our reading today picks up, we have a problem. There is a famine in the land. A famine hits the land. Famine, there's not enough food to go around. Maybe the crops went bad, maybe there's a locust plague, we don't know the whole context. But uh, bad year of crops... Something is happening and food becomes very scarce. And so this region that God has promised to Abram um, is now food insecure. And so he makes a decision. He said, look, you know, okay, this is good, but there's no food here. And I can't feed all my people and my animals. I got to get out of here. So he goes south into the region of Egypt. And he intends to sojourn there for a while. And this is where our passage picks up. I'm going to start at this verse 11 here. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So that's a problem, huh? 
He's moving from sort of out of the frying pan and into the fire. He's, he's, he says, I'm going to go to Egypt. But then he says, I'm actually afraid for my life because I have a really attractive wife. I have the exact same problem, by the way. Um, and um, as, <laughs> as he's going down into Egypt, he's saying, look, I think my life is in danger because wife, even though you're like in your late 70s, you're very attractive. You're kind of a hottie. And the, the Egyptians are going to want you for their royalty. They're going to want to take you. They're going to kill me and take you and put you in the royal harem. And um, the, it sounds to modern ears like that's a pretty xenophobic thing, right? That Abram's just like, oh, those Egyptians, they're so terrible. Like, we don't want to, like, they're known for being terrible and they're known for doing these, these sort of things. And, and I think what we're going to see is, is you know, is Abraham's, Abram's fear valid? We'll talk about that this more in a second here. Um, and so what he does, is he, he cooks up a, a deception. He says this, say that you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Certainly this is an unorthodox solution to an unorthodox problem. The gist of it here is that if Sarai presents herself as Abram's sister, not only will Abram's life be spared because they don't have to ask the husband to, to bring her into the harem, but if she is married off to the Egyptians, he wouldn't just be allowed to live. He would also receive a hefty dowry, right? Like, like the, paying the bride price, if you're familiar with that, that tradition of the ancient Near East. Um, it wouldn't just be that, that he um, gets to live, but the Egyptians would have to pay him a very hefty sum for the right of marrying his sister. So the plan here is not just to survive, the plan here is to thrive by ingratiating themselves and enmeshing themselves with Egyptian royalty. Given what we know about Sarai and Abram later on in our reading uh, of Genesis, we're gonna get to this later, I'm inclined to think that Sarai is a willing participant in this um, uh, scheme. Um, we're gonna go to find that uh, Sarai's character is not that of a demure housewife. Um, she, she isn't this sort of like submissive, you know, kind of wife to her husband. She's more of the my big fat Greek wedding kind of wife. You remember my big fat Greek wedding? What is, the, what, is, what is the great line from that movie? The man may be the head of the household, but the wife is the neck. And she can turn the head whichever direction she wants. So Sarah's not someone who is going to sort of say yes husband and kind of go along with it. She's... And we find this out later on. She's actually a very uh, strong and, and impassioned character here. Um, we'll get to those stories eventually, but for now, the text doesn't record pushback, so I think we're not on unsteady ground to assume that Sarah agrees with this plan and it, it, things move forward with her consent. And you know what? Abram has actually proved right on two hunches. Um, one, he has an accurate representation of the physical beauty of his wife. He doesn't have rose-tinted glasses because he moves down into the region of Egypt and, and the courtiers of, of the court come and they see this woman, they're like, you know, they're like giving her the cat calls, right? Uh, ancient Egyptian cat calls. So he's right about that. And he's also right about the fact that they would want this woman to be brought into the king, the Pharaoh's harem. And that's what they do. Um, Sarai is taken into Pharaoh's household. She's taken into his harem. And the text says that for her sake, Pharaoh dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servies, servants, female donkeys, and camels. 
That's quite a hefty bride price to have all of that given to Abram in exchange for his <clears throat> sister. That is a very generous dowry. And so if you're going to save your own skin by pimping out your wife, um, do it with an Egyptian pharaoh because the cash is really good. That's the moral of our sermon today. Just kidding. Enter God from stage right in this odd, uncomfortable situation. What does God do? But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And so Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you've done to me? Why did you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Four quick observations here about this very odd reading that we come to in the book of Genesis. First, Abraham's instinct was right, but his solution was wrong. Like we said a moment ago, Abraham was right on two counts, that his wife was so beautiful that it would draw the attention of the Egyptian ruling class, and they would be interested in taking Sarai for Pharaoh's harem. So, and that's something, right? Um, God created Genesis back in marriage chapter 1 to be a lifelong union between a man and a woman. And the fact that the Egyptians were the kind of people um, who were willing to kill men to take away their attractive wives, right? We often look in this text and think of Abram's uh, deceitfulness, um, but really the Egyptians here aren't, it's not like they don't have some blood on their own hands. Um, that, that Abram, I think, is proven that his instincts are right on a number of levels. And so it makes some sense that God would say, okay, Egyptians, plagues on you uh, because you guys are the kind of people who do this sort of thing. Um, so Abraham is indeed deceitful in our reading, but the Egyptians aren't coming out of this looking much better. And again, that's why I think uh, the plagues go to Egypt while Abram and Sarai get away scot-free. Um, he's not just punishing the Egyptians because they were somehow duped into sinning. He's punishing the Egyptians for a whole kind of culture that would look at another man's wife and say, I want that. That's what is happening there. That said, um, part of the great promise of God that we outlined before, and we're going to get more of this in a second, is that God would bless Abram and curse his enemies. Um, that Abraham had a relationship with a God who made promises. The fact that Abram was, deceived, uh, was um, deceitful and scared for his life, and he was willing to temporarily dissolve his marriage so that Sarai could sleep with another man. It's a good thing that God works with sinners, because Abraham's gunning for quite smiting otherwise. And that he does something in this text that is absolutely, um, uh, there's, there no, there's no excuse for it. And so as much as we can sort of blame the Egyptians for creating a culture where this is necessary, Abram's working with a God um, who made promises that this sort of thing would not happen to him. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Second observation from this text. This isn't going to be the last time that Abram is deceitful, and it becomes a pattern in the family. It becomes a pattern in the family. Um, one of the greatest gifts of the, of the book of Genesis is that we get to see in high-definition, 4K, Technicolor, Blu-ray clarity how family patterns of dysfunction move from generation to generation. Um, that's what the psychologists, uh, they, they call that family patterns of dysfunction. That's just what the Bible means by saying that God visits the sins of the fathers unto their children to the third and the fourth generation. Um, that Abraham's deceit here is going to be repeated again 
Um, but next time it's going to happen, he's going to do the exact same thing in a couple of chapters. He's going to deceive a, a foreign king about his wife. He's going to do the exact same thing with the Philistines that he did with the Egyptians. Um, that that is coming later on in the book of Genesis. And then Abram's son, Isaac, is going to be like the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Because um, what's going to happen is Isaac is going to attempt to do the exact same thing with the king of the Philistines as well. And then, of course, Abraham's grandson, um, uh, Jacob. Um, I don't have to tell you all the sort of times that Jacob is a deceiver, but he deceives his brother out of his birthright. He received, deceives his father to get a blessing. Um, he deceives and is deceived. The whole story of Jacob is in essence that he is one who is a trickster and a prankster who deceives people to get what he wants. But then he, too, gets his own fair share of that. And maybe we'll get to that in our series to talk more about that later on. But this is the not, not the last time we're going to encounter a deceptive activity by Abram or his lineage. And all of this deception is ladded, uh, rooted in a lack of trust in God, isn't it? That deception is fundamentally about control and concealing the truth to get others to do your will and to control your life in such a way to control others around you and not recognize that we have a God who's in control and makes promises. Third observation I want to share with you. Um, the, the narrative function of the story comes together in such a way that we now see that Sarai is truly barren. I don't want to be too pointed about this, but this episode serves to highlight the reality of um, what the scriptures call Sarai's closed womb. And uh, after uh, Pharaoh took Sarai into his harem, um, we have some real indication that the infertility issues that are present in this couple are real and deeply wounding for Sarai. Um, you know, we have sort of an ancient way of isolating the problem, as it were, um, that it's not necessarily Abram who's having trouble in this marriage with um, the infertility piece of this. Um, and we're going to see later on that as a couple, um, Sarah and Abram are desperate. They're so desperate to have children that they are not above sharing the marital bed to make it happen. Um, and so there is some real desperation about having children between these two that actually tears their marriage apart. Um, and that has to do with sort of fear of the future, uh, fear of, of having a future where there are no children to take care of them in their old age. But it also has to do with just the fact that not having children is, uh, when you want children, is a very difficult and serious thing. Um, and so uh, the third thing I want to share with you is now we can see in more clear focus on the tragedy of Sarai being barren in the sense that it, she isn't able to conceive with the pharaoh of Egypt either. Fourth thing, fourth part of our reading here, fourth observation. Um, one of the events um, that this story highlights for us is sort of this exodus um, that takes place uh, in the book of Genesis that reflects another exodus that's going to happen in the next book of the Bible, which is Exodus. It's a lot of exodus happening here. Because there will be another time when Abram's uh, progeny... Um, his great-grandchildren, Jacob and his uh, 12 sons, um, they will also go to Egypt because there is a great famine in the land. And what they're going to do there is they're going to find, when they get down into Egypt, that one of their family members, through all sorts of wacky circumstances, has ended up as sort of the vice president of Egypt. And so when they go down there, they are able to find shelter from the famine and good graces in the king's court because they have someone on the inside. But then after some time, you see this 
family will grow and become not just sort of uh, 12 uh, families, but they're going to become, as God promised, a nation. And when they leave, when they leave, when they do leave, it will be because of plagues, and they will take all of the things with them. They will plunder Egypt and take gold and silver and all of these things with them when they leave. And so, in a way that I don't fully understand here, and um, I, you know, some smarter scholars and Bible people than I can tell more, tell you more about it. The story of Sarai's captivity in Egypt is meant to reflect and make us think about the greater Exodus to come with Moses. Is meant to make us think in some way of the great Exodus that is the Christian gospel. Um, that in the same way Sarai is sort of delivered uh, out and they plunder Egypt is the same way that Moses and the people of Israel are led out of Egypt uh, as well, is the same way that you and I are led out of slavery to sin. Uh, defeating a spiritual Egypt is part of what Christ accomplishes in his death and resurrection. Um, so there's a lot there. I don't have time to get into the details, but there is something here, a foreshadow of the promise to come that, yes, there is going to be a great nation and all nations will be blessed in this very weird, unorthodox, and tragic um, break in their marriage. The bigger story here, I think, is this. What we learn about Abram is that he is a man who has faith, but it is quite fickle. God comes to him. God gives him these six promises, right? And, and, God's good, uh, and Abram's good to go at first. Right, so, so Abram is willing to leave his family and his 401k retirement plan behind and go and just travel because God told him he would and God promised him that things would go well. Um, this is something the, the author of the New Testament book of Hebrews picks up on, right? By faith, Abram, Abraham, Abram, more on that later. By faith, Abram obeyed when he was called to go out to a place um, that he was to receive as an inheritance and he went out not knowing where he was going. Um, but when the going gets really tough, when it gets to be a hard moment, Abram flees to Egypt. Abram forgets God's promises of blessing, especially that part about cursing the enemies, that part about protection. So Abram comes up with a solution on his own. He passes off his wife as his sister, and then all of a sudden, Abram, the great hero from last week's sermon, is a guy who believes God and sets out on his own. That same guy doesn't believe God's promises in our story. And he cooks up a scheme um, that destroys his marriage and makes money in the process. This is why Martin Luther disagrees with Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine and G.K. Chesterton and John Milton. For Luther, he said, the chief sin is not pride, although that it is an important sin. Um, it's the chief sin, according to Luther, is unbelief in the promises of God. The chief sin is unbelief. Here's uh, Luther from his commentary on Romans. He says this, The scriptures see into the heart, to the root and main source of all sin, unbelief in the depth of the heart. Thus, even as faith alone makes just and brings the spirit and the desire to do good external works, read, like having faith actually makes you want to believe and do good things, so it is only unbelief which sins and exalts the flesh and brings desire to do evil external works. For Luther, if you actually believe in the promises of God, it's like fertilizer on the tree of faith, and you produce all sorts of good works as fruit. 
But if you don't believe the promises of God, it's like this other anti-fertilizer, which makes you produce all of the bad fruit. For Luther, what Luther is saying is that if we believed in our whole heart in the goodness of God and the promises he makes to us, if we actually believed these things to be true, um, we wouldn't have a reason to act in contradictory ways to God's will. If Abram truly believed in God's six-part promise about blessing, he wouldn't have sold out his wife. If Abram truly believed in God's uh, six-part promise, especially the part about the cursing people who dishonor him, cursing his enemies, he would walk right into the nation of Egypt with his trophy wife and zero concern for his well-being because he believes God is going to protect him. If Abram truly believed that God was going to bless him, then he could have just even stayed in Canaan and not left. It was the promised land after all, um, and he might never have left for Egypt and gotten himself in this trouble in the first place. He would have trusted in the provision of God in the middle of famine to take care of him and his family. If Abram truly believed that he was going to be a nation, that he and his wife would build a family so big that they would need to transition out of a family and into a nation state, there's no way he would let any man within a six-foot social distance of his wife. But Abram doesn't believe. And we are left with this bizarre story that repulses readers, ancient and modern. Again, it's a good thing God works with imperfect sinners, or else Abram would be out to sea in the next flood that came around um, because of today's fiasco. That's how bad it is. So here's what I want to share with you. What can we take away from this wacky story? this Old Testament um, affront to our modern sensibilities. Um, I certainly hope that none of you in church today are selling out your spouses in fear of your wife. Um, if you are, come and see me after the service. We'll talk about it. But in all seriousness, if the odds are right, and we're playing the odds here, um, many of you are struggling with your own unbelief manifesting as um, sin, unbelief manifesting in um, bad external activity. And I don't know what it is for all of you. Um, porn habits, eating disorders, miserly greed, deep-seated anger, unresolved resentment towards a family member, pride because you have the correct political stance, fear you're never going to be good enough. Um, I learned this week a new verb. I thought it was very fun. It's called doom scrolling. It's a word someone made up for people who just sit online and go on the internet and they see all the bad news in the world. And they, they ingest it so much that it becomes bad for their, their psyche and they become sort of um, angry and unhinged as a result. Maybe you're doom scrolling. Um, and the antidote in today's reading we find for the doom scrollers and the, uh, the people who are afraid and the people who are prideful and all of these things, the antidote is not going to be a lecture from the pulpit. It's not going to be an sort of ethically flavored Bible verse you can take to the inside of your Bible. It's not going to be a Bible verse you can get embroidered on a pillow. It's not special software to contail your internet habits. It's not a public shaming or figure wagging. People who believe in the promise of God and adjust their lives accordingly are the ones that see their problems lose the power. Let me say that again. People who believe in the promises of God are the ones who see their problems lose their power. And so that's why every week I come to the pulpit here and I remind you, I give you a chance to remember again afresh um, the reality of the, the fact that you and I have promises from God too. What has God promised us? 
God has promised us the forgiveness of our sins, past, present, and future. Um, through Jesus' death and resurrection, God has made a way for you to have eternal life in a world that is restored to its original and uncorrupted beauty. God loves you and has promised that everything will be okay. And as the scriptures remind us, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus our Lord. You, my friend, are a beloved child of God. You have a Father in heaven who delights in you. And if you can remember that divine promise and keep it in front of you at all times, you will be freed of the same mistake of that forgetful Abram. Stay tuned. Because one of the patterns that we'll see in the coming weeks is that God is so loving, he will remind Abram of his promise again and again and again. One of the chief hallmarks of the story of Abram is a man who constantly forgets the love of God and a God who constantly reminds him of his love, of his promise, and that God does not break his promise. And whenever you need relief from your unbelief, God will do the same for you too. He promised he would. In Jesus' name, amen. Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania.